first adopted my daughter Lila from China, she came home and my son Russell was three years old. Um, he started doing this kind of funny thing because of course this was now the first time that he needed to share his parents' attention and with his new sister. And so sometimes I would be reading a book to Lila or playing you know, with her and um, Russell would say, can I get some care? <laughs> And uh, a little bit later, Lila started doing this funny thing where, you know, I would be uh, giving Russell attention, reading a book with him, playing Legos with him, something like that. She would come over and actually take my face and move it to look into her face. She would literally take my face in her hands and, and move it. It was like they were sort of saying, Mommy, pay attention. Can I get some care? Mommy, pay attention to, to me. Take, take my face, move it. Can I get some care? Pay attention. And, and today we're wrapping up this series on stories Jesus told, uh, the parables. And if there were one theme to the parables that Jesus told, if we were to just take all these different parables and sort of say, what is, what is a theme that, that flows throughout all of them? One, perhaps, would be pay attention. Pay attention. Jesus says that the kingdom is like many things. It's like a farmer sowing seed. It's like a woman kneading dough. It's like a man hunting treasure. It's like a fisherman casting a net. A landowner being generous. The kingdom is like seed. It's like lost coin. It's a lost sheep. It's like yeast. It's, it's like all these things. It's, it's not just one thing. It's, it's so many different things. It's hard to say it's any one thing. But, but this one thing unites all the parables. Pay attention. Pay attention. The kingdom, Jesus is saying in many different ways, is here. It's always present. But often we are absent. We don't have eyes to see it right here, right now. And so over and over again, Jesus is saying, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. My friend Jody is, I think, incredible at paying attention to her life, <laughs> paying attention and seeing how the kingdom is at work all around her. Um, she has four biological children, two that they adopted from Sierra Leone. The, um, the two from Sierra Leone are twins, a boy and a girl, Cora and Zeke. And this picture of them when they were little, when they first came home, they were two and a half years old. And this is a picture of them more recently. Uh, they are in high school now. And uh, Cora has gotten real into track and Jody uh, wrote this story, told this story about a recent track meet. And I, when I read it, I just thought this is such a classic instance of how I have seen her paying attention to her life and noticing where the kingdom is at work. So uh, Cora got, you know, has gotten real into track. And so this was a, a recent story that Jody said. And just notice, notice the paying attention that is happening here. She said this about her daughter, Cora. She's been gunning for the school record all season. 
I think the next picture might show her in her track <laughs> uh, outfit. She said, we recently discovered that their Sierra Leone blood has some serious power and speed in it, and track has quickly become a new passion. So at the end of her district race, her team gathered around the clock waiting for the 100-meter times to post. And as soon as Cora Lander's 12.3 was posted, she jumped up into her brother's arms. Her teammates and coaches rushed, rushed to congratulate her as she smashed the 29-year-old school record. Proud moment. Jody said of this moment, she said, I was so enjoying watching her, Cora, celebrate. She then pulled away from the group and started running down the track sideline. Her gaze was scanning the bleachers. What is she doing? I thought. And then I realized, she's looking for me. She caught my gaze and gave me a thumbs up and a giant smile and then ran off with her still congratulatory teammates. And Jody said of herself, and I wept. I perhaps appeared like a track parent who is altogether too invested in breaking records. But what they didn't know was that I've been gunning for her heart for 15 years, fighting for her to look for me. Look for me in your pain. Look for me in your joy. She was the tiny two-and-a-half-year-old toddler who stood on the doorway of the hotel room on the first night that we were together, her shoes on, her backpack firmly on her back, had she been tall enough to reach the door handle, she no doubt would have opened it and dragged her brother Zeke with her to attempt to find their way on the midnight Freetown streets. She stood there until her little legs collapsed in exhaustion. My first battle, our first battle, trust me enough to sleep. For weeks after arriving home with us, she would scrub her twin brother's back in the bath and spoon-feed him his dinner. She would take two snacks every time I handed them out so that she could ensure that one got to him. The next battle, trust me to take care of your brother. I will feed him. I'm his mom now. You can relax. And for the next 15 years, I battled for her heart. Let me love you. Let me help you. Look for me. In your pain and in your victory, let me carry it. Let me share in it. I watched her fight it. I could not blame her because she knew mothers do die after all. And the only true safety was if she did it all by herself. And so when I say she looked for me, in the significant moment when her defenses were down, she looked for me. It was a whole thing that made a school record pale. What a gift. What a girl. Do you see how she's paying attention? Just noticing? It's not just a track record. There's more going on here. This is the theme of the stories Jesus told. It's this thread that goes throughout all the parables. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention in your joy, in your pain, when it goes how you want, when it doesn't go how you want. In the unwanted emotions, 
in the resentments, in the estrangements, in the hurt, in the disappointment, in the joy, in the sorrow, in all of it, pay attention. Richard Rohr, uh, he says it this way. He says, everything belongs. Sometimes he'll say, everything is spiritual. Like, it is all a part of our formation. And we tend to think sometimes, I don't know about you, but like uh, church, places like church are the spiritual places where spiritual things are happening, but places like struggle, disappointment, estrangements are not. But everything is spiritual, and when we have eyes to see, when we learn to pay attention, we begin to see how the kingdom of God is at work in and through and behind the various scenes of our lives. There's a um, French philosopher, Jackson Cadard, and, and he said it like this. He said, anything that annoys you is teaching you patience. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Anyone who abandons you is teaching you how to stand up on your own two feet, or I might say, find your trust in God. Anything that angers you is teaching you forgiveness and compassion. Anything that has power over you is teaching you how to take your power back, find your power in God's spirit. Anything you hate is teaching you unconditional love. Anything you fear is teaching you courage to overcome your fear. Anything you can't control is teaching you how to let go. It's like pay attention. This is how Jesus was. Pay attention. Pay attention. See the birds? See the fishing? See this? See that? Everything belongs. And if Jesus is right and the kingdom has in fact arrived, and we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom, if that kingdom really isn't in trouble, and neither are we, if we believe the promises of God that everything sad one day will be untrue, that God is in the business of redeeming and restoring and making all things new, if we really believe that, then we really can take heart. We can pay attention because we know every tear will be wiped away. So we pay attention because it's through the joys, it's through the pains, it's through the highs and through the lows that God is present and active and inviting us, not into an American way that's always up and to the right, not into the way of comfort where everything always goes our way, but into the Eucharist life, into the cruciform way into the way that Jesus showed us, which is the way of being taken and blessed and broken and given for the healing of the world. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the kingdom. So pay attention. The kingdom is here. Now, Steve just read this parable that we often, uh, we often call this the parable of the vineyard. And pay attention to your response to it. I actually heard one pastor, uh, you know, read this passage of scripture, and um, then, then he finished it. He said, this is the word of the Lord. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, just imagine, right? Put yourself in this story. Like, you show up bright and early for work. You're ready to go. You're out there, and the truck comes, and you're amazed to be hired. I mean, they didn't ask for a resume. They didn't ask for references. You find out you're going to make a denarius. You start thinking of all the bills you could pay, the clothes you could buy, the little bit you could put into savings. You need this job. And then you go. And the first hour, it's like, oh, cool of the day. The sun's not too intense yet. Feeling pretty good. 
feeling like you can kind of find those places of shade as the sun starts to come up, hide yourself behind some branches, keep working, you're feeling good. And then like an hour in, you see some more workers arrive, and at that point you're kind of relieved, you're like, there's a lot of work to do, and they're not working quite as efficiently or quite as fast as you are, but you're grateful for the help, and they pick it up pretty quick. And you're forming a camaraderie, especially with these people who came on that first, came first with you straight away in the morning. You're you're finding some camaraderie, some friendship with those people. But then as the day goes on, there's another group that arrives and another group. And while you're grateful that there's more people there to help with all this work, you're also just a little bit resentful because they don't get how things work around here. They don't understand this culture. They don't understand how to do the work. They're certainly not as efficient. And you are breaking a sweat. And they don't even have any dirt under their fingernails. They don't even have a bead of sweat on their foreheads. And so you just kind of shun that, you know, kind of arm's length with this group. But the worst, the very worst part is that like 11 hours into the 12-hour day, some workers arrive. And they can do like hardly anything. You can get more done in 10 minutes than three of them can do in that full hour. And you resent that and you just pay no attention to them whatsoever. But finally it's over. The foreman comes, going to pay everybody. So you're eager to be paid. But to your surprise, the foreman is like, hey, the people who got here last, I'm going to pay them first. And so brings them up gives them a denarius, and you're like, ah, awesome, a denarius for one hour, and I worked 12. Like, you're getting out your cell phone, and you're thinking, like, call my family, tell them to book the trip to Paris, get on Amazon, get some new luggage for the trip, just whatever you want, right? Like, you are gonna, you're going to hit the jackpot here. And then the people who arrived, like, three hours ago are called forward, a denarius also. And the people who arrived six hours ago, a denarius. And when you're invited up, having been there first, but invited up to get paid last, and a denarius is stuck in your hand, you nearly want to spit on it. You're so disgusted. This is often how we respond to this story, right? This is how we think about this story. When we're paying attention in our bodies, and we hear the story, we're like, not fair. Not fair. Not right. Not just. Not fair. Now, it's interesting. The parable is rarely, this one anyway, it's, if we're paying attention, it's rarely heard as good news in North America, Western Europe. It's rarely heard as good news to, you know, intellectual elites, to the financially well-off. Rarely heard as good news. In other parts of the world, though, among other sectors of society, this parable is heard as incredibly good news kind of depends on whether you're used to being first or not. Depends on how much you think that you're owed. The parable is, of course, first and foremost, 
not even about you. It's not about the workers and how much they worked or didn't work or when they showed up or how long they stayed. Not about that. It is first and foremost about the master's generosity. The kingdom is about a generosity on a scale we can't comprehend. It's a generosity that's of a quality. It's of a kind that we don't know anything about. Our world doesn't view generosity this way. When you think about it, when we think of generosity in our world, generosity is it's almost always about earning. It's almost always at least connected to earning. It's almost always tied to some sort of a bonus system. So you think about like, oh, I was really generous with the wait staff. Gave them a 30% tip. Did you do that because they were amazing? Would you do that if they were terrible? Generosity in our minds is almost always thought of like a bonus system. It's like a reward. It's like if your realtor doesn't go on the family vacation to stay and close the deal for you, you're probably gonna feel real generous. But it's connected to merit, it's connected to, to earning. When I put a little bit of extra effort into a project, you know, I kind of expect to reap more of the profits. It's how we are trained to think. But generosity in our world is rarely generosity like the kingdom is talking about generosity. In our world, it's almost always reward. But the kingdom generosity that Jesus is, t- is talking about here, it doesn't work on any bonus system. It's not given in response to some sort of goodness on the part of the recipient. It's not a reward. So this story is first and foremost, it's first about who God is. The nature and character of God. It's a story about God and it's a story about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And maybe this story and all the parables are not just about heaven someday, but also about practicing heaven today, here and now, on this earth, in this time. Jesus said, the kingdom is now, it's within you. It's, it is coming. It's there, but it's also here too. And Jesus said, this is how I want you to pray, on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is inviting us to pay attention, to see the ways in which we think about generosity like a reward, like earning, but but the nature of God is different. The way of the kingdom is different. And it kind of offends those of us who feel owed, feel entitled, rubs us wrong. Jesus is inviting us into participation in kingdom living here and now. And that is just the here and now part on earth as it is in heaven. That's where it gets subversive. subversive. Because I think when we read this story, we can easily say like, oh, isn't that nice heaven is that way? We can think, oh, that's great that like the thief on the cross who lived this horrible life enters the kingdom of heaven moments before and receives the same salvation as the saint, we could think, oh, in heaven, isn't that nice? When we think about practicing the kingdom of heaven here and now, that's where it starts to kind of rub us wrong. On earth as it is in heaven, on earth is where we really struggle with this. 
the reversing of values, the, the flip-flop nature of things. Jesus told these stories not just about heaven, but about practicing heaven. Could it actually be that the best place to be is last? Could it actually be that the kingdom of heaven is present in losing, not winning? You know, Dallas Willard, author and philosopher, and uh, he was an amazing teacher, had an incredible ability to uh, just the art of persuasion and, you know, use of words. And there's a story about one time he's teaching a class, like a seminary class. And he uh, is, is teaching, and a very combative student comes at him. Just the energy was, you know, fighting energy was just saying crazy things that were definitely, you know, not accurate or true. So the student comes at him, and, and the story is that Dallas Willard in that moment said, all right, that, that will be the end of our class today. Someone came up to him afterwards and asked him, like, why didn't you set that student straight? Why didn't you put that student in his place? And his response was this. He said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. What if we were to practice not having the last word? You know, having the last word is usually about gaining a sense of superiority in some way? What if we were to practice not having the last word as a way of being last, not first? What if we were to practice losing this week, practice being at the end of the line, practice not always trying to be first, have the last word, or gain superiority? When you're driving on I-70, what would it look like to be like, thank you, God, for the lesson that this moment is when somebody, right? And is the kingdom present there? What would it look like to do that and to see, to see there how God might be showing you something about the kingdom? Because the kingdom is like a landowner who is so radically generous in no way that we have ever seen on this earth before. It's not connected to people's merit. It's just his nature to be generous. And usually, in the here and now, we miss it. We don't see it. Unless we're in the back of the line. So let's practice paying attention from the back of the line. Because attention, it's like the, the highest form of generosity. I think Simone Weil said that, that attention, where you place your attention, is the, the highest form of generosity. So sitting here in church, giving God your attention, is one thing. But when you feel you've lost, when you feel you've been wronged, when you feel life isn't fair and you say, why, God, is this happening to me? To pay attention there to how the kingdom may be showing up in that 
that's the highest form of generosity. That is a reflection of the heart of our generous Father. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, these words disturb us. They, each time we come to them, they, they, they're prickly and they spiral deeper into us, but sometimes with a lot of things that have to move out of the way first. So I pray, God, that your word might be alive and active in us, that you might take the seeds of your word and grow them deeper in the soil of our hearts, that they might bear good fruit, fruit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.